Oh, how I love to uh, gather for worship on the Lord's Day and to, to sing, to sing the biblically rich songs that we sing here and to have the opportunity to reflect together with our combined voices the glories of our Christ. What a unique blessing it is. And uh, it feeds my soul in a way that uh, little else does. Well, I want to invite you this morning to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. The last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And we look at the last of the seven churches that the revelation of Jesus Christ is directed to here in the early portion of the book of Revelation. I'll remind you that the book starts out with a vision of the person and work of Christ, and then there is a specific message to seven churches that applies the truth of who Christ is to each of those churches in unique ways, and by extension to all churches as we look into these messages. I'll invite you to stand in reverence for reading the perfect word of our sovereign God. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. O Lord, we look into Your Word this morning and we see this frightening Word, this this threatening Word, this Word of warning. But Lord, we also see the glorious Word of promise. We see Your love. We see the way You work among, among us. We see Your call to the beauty of repentance. Lord, may we hear. May we open. May we be united to You by faith and commune with You in life. 
May we look to the time where by faith in Christ we rule and reign forever. Oh Lord, teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't deny the facts about Jesus and the Gospel, but I just want to do what I want to do right now. Those were the words of one of our son as we sons as we pressed on him at times about the gospel. You know, what are you doing with Christ? How are you responding to Christ? I don't deny those facts. I just want to do what I want to do. And Judy and I responded to that by saying, I understand. Everybody's like that before they come to faith. And that we are thankful for your honesty and we are praying that you would repent and put your faith in Jesus as Lord. Now, now certainly we would have rather heard the first moment we pressed in on the Gospel, I love Jesus with all my heart, He is Lord and I want to follow Him. But, an honest assessment that I know what it says, but I want to do what I want to do is far better than faking it. It was far better than acting as though something was true that wasn't. It was far better to have an honest assessment of the coldness of his heart toward the truth of the Gospel than for him to act like just mentally assenting to some facts about Jesus was enough. It would have been far worse for him to say, oh listen, I don't deny those facts, I'm fine, leave me alone. Later, he came to a point where he said, I realize that if I don't make a choice to follow Jesus, I will be on a path that leads to destruction. So I am willing to put my faith in Him as Lord and follow Him. And we thank God for that. But the problem is that often, a lot of the contemporary church culture in America specializes in cultivating spiritual half-heartedness. It specializes in being broad and thin without much content to the message. How can we minimize the message and get it down to the point where the broadest group of people can agree upon it? Nominal Christianity. Giving assent to Jesus, not verbally denying Jesus, but really living for yourself seems to be a philosophy of ministry that many embrace. And that's a frightening thing. Just pray a prayer. Just acknowledge Him. Just assent to the fact that He is. You don't have to get weird about it. Just trust Christ. Don't worry about all those other things and issues. You can do what you want to do, but just simply give assent to Christ. 
You can be cool and Christian. You can be respectable and Christian. You don't have to be weird. You can have a private faith, an individualized faith. You don't have to go all public about it. A philosophy of ministry that often, in the name of reaching people, shrinks the faith down to as little as possible and calls for the masses to, uh, uh, to assent to the absolute minimum. Call people to that and no more. Just call people to the broadest sense of, of trusting Jesus. Don't give any content to it. Don't shape it out. Don't talk about what it means to walk in line with the Gospel. Don't draw out the implications of the Lordship of Christ. But when we read our text today, and we match it with a mindset that almost cultivates a nominal half-heartedness about following Christ, we ought to be shocked. In the face of that kind of approach to church life, here we have Jesus' harshest words to this church at Laodicea. And one thing that we need to know is that it was a successful church in many ways from the outside looking in. It was a wealthy church, but it was half-hearted. It was lukewarm. And Jesus speaks harsh and direct words that ought to shake all of us to the core. When we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus' harshest words are always directed at religious hypocrisy. Always. The idea that one could name his name and just live however they want to, or go about their business, or say one thing and do another thing, and here Jesus' words are fierce. I'll remind you of the context. The, the Apostle John is on an isle called Patmos. He's not there on a vacation. He's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. It's a rocky island in which political exiles would be sent. He's a political exile because the norm of the day was that everyone would at least assent to the fact that Caesar is Lord. And John would not because he said, if Jesus is Lord, there is no other Lord. Now, a lot of half-hearted, lukewarm Christians would say, you don't, just say it. It's, it's just a political game. It's just a formula. You don't have to live as though Caesar is Lord. All they want you to do is say it. You don't have to really mean it. You don't have to do anything with it. Just say it. What good are you going to be uh, for Jesus on an island. In prison. A lot of good. We're reading His words this morning in 2017. Do you see how half-heartedness works? How lukewarmness works? Ah, oh, just play the game. Everybody's got to play the game in the world. You can have your private faith. You can live with Jesus as Lord. They're not going to make you bow down to Caesar uh, publicly over and over again. They're, they just want you to say it. 
And John says, no. And he's on the Isle of Patmos and he's worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day. He's acknowledging the Lord's Day, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, even though he's on this island in the middle of nowhere. And God comes to him. And what we have is the revelation of Jesus Christ that John records for us. And so what we have to these churches is not John's words to these churches. They're the words of Jesus, the risen and ascended Christ to these churches. And he follows a pattern. He gives a vision of who he is and what he's done. And then he says to each church, okay, this is what's going on here. This is what you need to most remember about who I am and what I've done. Then he talks about what's right in the church. Not here because there's nothing to commend in this church. But in most of them. Then he talks about what's wrong in the church. Then he gives his counsel to the church on how they should respond. And then he gives a promise to the church if they respond appropriately. Well, let's look at this one beginning in verse 14. The church at Laodicea. The first thing we see is the Lord of the church. That's our heading. The only trustworthy foundation for life. That's what he reminds them of. What he said about himself at the beginning of Revelation, what he wants them to latch on to is what he said about himself as the fact that he is the only trustworthy foundation for life. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, Now, we've seen it again and again that some things that we know about the background of these cities helps us understand the way Jesus is communicating to them. Laodicea was at the junction of three very important roads. It was a prominent city, and it was one of the wealthiest cities at that time. In fact, around AD 60, there was a terrible earthquake that devastated the whole area, But Laodicea was so wealthy that it didn't apply to Rome for any money to rebuild. It just rebuilt. It was the banking center of the region. It was the manufacturing center, especially known for its black wool that was valuable. It was also a medical center for the entire region. It had a famous medical school, and it was also famous for an eye salve that was created that treated a particular disease. So this is a place of the haves. It's wealthy, prosperous, and educated. Look at the second half of verse 14. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, we could spend a lot of time on those three descriptors because they're very powerful, but let's quickly think about them. The words of the Amen. This is pulled out of Isaiah 65, verse 16 where twice in that section it says that God, Yahweh, the Lord, is the God of the Amen. It says it twice. The God of the Amen. Some translations paraphrase it to the God of truth. For Amen meant absolutely and utterly trustworthy. Now, a lot of people today in sermons and things say Amen is sort of a rhythmic thing, but you're saying yes, Yes, it's true. That's absolutely true. That is a foundational thing that I ought to build my life on. He is the God of the Amen. Jesus, in claiming that He speaks the words of the Amen, is identifying Himself with God. 
as revealed in the Old Testament in saying that He is the one that brings the absolutely trustworthy foundational message. Then it says, He's the faithful and true witness. There are two different words that are generally used for true in the New Testament. And the one here is the one for genuine. The real deal. The real thing. He is the genuine witness. There are a lot of false witnesses out there. The word witness is the word from which we get the word martyrs because so many witnessed for their faith died for their faith. He is the genuine witness. He is the one who speaks genuine truth as opposed to this. An illusion. Something that is just an appearance and not a reality. Some things look good, but there's nothing there. Some things seem good, but there's nothing there. One thing that I learned after being in ministry a long time is you don't have any idea what anybody's life is from the outside looking in. Sometimes the people who appear to have it most together and appear to have what everybody would want, the story inside their lives is painful and difficult and troubling. Some people who don't carry themselves in that way, and you know, some people just uh, have never had an unspoken thought, and you think their lives are a mess, and you really they're not. You can't simply judge by outward appearance. Jesus says that He brings not the appearance of truth, not the illusion of truth, but that He brings His witnesses genuine truth. Now, the next thing it says is He is the beginning of God's creation. The, the word, the ruler of God's creation or particularly the source of God's creation. It's not just that He's the beginning of a sequence. It's not just that He has a authority. It's not just that He is a ruler, but it means that He's the source of creation. He is the originator of creation. So if you think about this, what He's reminding them that they need is foundational. Listen, if you're going to figure out how to deal with life in the created order you probably ought to go to the source of creation. The one who speaks genuine truth. And the one who gives you an utter, utterly and absolutely trustworthy foundation. By the way, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15-18, through 18, Colossae was nearby and it tells us that one of the things that the, church, that the letter to the church at Colossae uh, was done is it was read in the church at Laodicea. In Colossians chapter 4.15 it says, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And it says something there about the supremacy of Christ in this letter, something that is similar to what he says here about the beginning of God's creation. Colossians 1.15 through 18 sounds like this. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. It's an important word for the church at Laodicea who gave allegiance to Jesus, but did not treat Him as preeminent. What should I build my life on? Go to the source of life. Who is genuine truth? And who is the only utterly and absolutely trustworthy foundation to build your life on? You don't build it on things in the created order. You don't build it on things that are derivative of the Creator. You go to the Creator. And you know that He is the one who has the trustworthy Word and He has revealed Himself in Jesus. See, this is the problem. The Laodiceans were building on another foundation. That foundation was self-sufficiency. It's easy to do that. You know you're doing that if you treat God as though He's like a a cosmic 911 operator. You just go about your business. You don't think about Him in your life until something happens. And then, oh, I realize this is outside of my control. Let me turn to God. When in reality, here's what's outside of your control. Everything. So why Jesus says, apart from me, You can do nothing. What does he mean? He means nothing that ultimately matters. Do you believe it? It's so easy for self-sufficiency to creep in. Thus, Jesus has no words of commendation for this church, only rebuke. So, what's wrong with the church? This. Being lukewarm makes Jesus Sick. Strong words. Look with me at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Nearby Laodicea was Colossae. Colossae was known for a uh, having cold, refreshing water from springs. Uh, there was, you would drink it in the midst of uh, whatever you were thirsty about, and it was so refreshing. In fact, there are a few things better than cold water in the midst of your real thirst. But there was also an area nearby called Heropolis. Heropolis was known for hot springs and hot water that was thought to be medicinal. Now, don't laugh at that because it still is today in many ways. In my desk, there's uh, some little bags of something that somebody gave me here almost a decade ago that whenever I have a sore throat, I get hot water, put that in there and drink it, and it helps. Judy's always like, do you want hot tea if you have a sore throat and everything? A medicinal reality of a hot drink. But then there was Laodicea. Laodicea had to have its water piped in from some distance away, so it was neither hot nor cold. 
So the expectation was when you drink, how it would quench your thirst. And it was very common for somebody who was new to Laodicea to ask for a drink and to take a drink of it and spit it out. It was a surprise. It was disgusting. It wasn't something that they were looking forward to. I like a hot sauce a lot. And Judy does not. One time we were somewhere and I take my ketchup and douse it with hot sauce and mix it up. She didn't have any ketchup. Looked over there, didn't know that. Put that in there and took a bite and went, ah! That's kind of like what would happen here. You expect one thing and you get something else. People would often spit it out of their mouth. Years ago, I was reading a a book on marriage. I don't remember what book it was. It was a long time ago, but there was one thing in that book that stuck out to me, and it said this. It said, the opposite of love and care is not hate and anger. It said the opposite of love and care is indifference. A lot of times you get angry because you do care. And it manifests itself in a sinful way. A lot of times things that you love deeply affect you negatively at deep levels because you're at least affected. But the worst thing is, who cares about you? You don't matter. You're neither here nor there. The church at Laodicea was lukewarm. It was neither hot nor cold. Their works were like that. There was a casual indifference. They did not deny the name of Jesus, but yet the name of Jesus didn't motivate them as a sense of their only hope. Jesus was on the margins of the church. You know, we've always tried to take care here with professions of faith and talk to people and and try to figure out what's going on in their heart because I realized early on in ministry that one of the worst things that you can have is a baptized, unconverted church member. Why? Because I'm a church member, I'm okay. But being a church member doesn't make anybody okay. Faith in Christ makes you okay. So being a church member can actually be harmful to somebody who's not a legitimate Christian because it can lull them to sleep into sort of a casual indifference not to be concerned about their faith. Now for those who have put their faith in Christ, they need the community of faith. But it's real easy for us to think one thing and do what makes it worse. Will's here today and uh, my worst parenting moment where Will had an accident on his leg and Hurt his leg and he described it to me. I have an athletics background. Uh, I thought, you know, it sounds like muscle. So he's been basketball season. I'm, I'm taking his leg and I'm put, stretching it out to stretch that muscle. I said, it'll get loose during the game. Starts and stops. It'll hurt and then it'll tighten up after. In the middle of the game, I'm looking out there and he's like, the longer the game goes on, the more he's basically playing on one leg. And I'm like, ah, that's not muscle. Halftime, I go get him, take him to the hospital. The truth is, his ball was kind of out of his socket. And me pulling on the back of his leg was the worst thing I could have been doing. Now, praise God, it didn't pop all the way out. But he had emergency surgery the next day. 
It appeared to me what I was doing was what made the most sense. It seemed obvious to me, and yet it was totally wrong. There is the appearance at the church at Laodicea that everything is okay. But look at verse 16. So because, or the word actually could be translated since. So since you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarmness makes Jesus sick. It's revolting. It's repulsive to Him. To act as though He is there, but He does not really matter that much. He is there, but you can trust in what you have and what you do. In verse 17, He describes their sickening lukewarmness in this way. Look with me at verse 17. For, or again, this is the same word that could be translated since, since you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Do do you get the point? Listen, let's not talk about needy. Okay, Jesus, fine. But, But I'm rich. I can take care of myself. I'm prosperous. I don't have any real need. Notice what he says. Not realizing that, or again, since you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, it doesn't get any stronger than that. A piling up of descriptors to say, you are in such danger. You are in such awful condition. You are blind, naked. You're poor. You don't have anything. You are to be pitied. You are wretched. Now, if you'll remember in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, we looked at the rich church of the poor. These people were poor, but they were spiritually rich. And now we have the poor, blind, naked church of the rich. These people are rich, but they're spiritually poor. It is often not what it looks like by appearances. The the word here is harsh. The appearances, they're fine because they're rich, they're prosperous. They don't need anything. But in reality, spiritually in the sight of God, they are like the small child in your home that does something and you give them a dollar bill. And they're like, a dollar? I'm rich. And you're going, yeah. Buy you two packs of gum, maybe. Right? But, but to them, because they can't see the big picture, and God, that seems like so much. The person who in the sight of God says, I'm rich, I'm prosperous, I have no need, is more absurd than that child. But we are so quick to think in those terms. Oh, I, I've got Jesus, but I'd be really happy if I just had a little bit more money. Or whatever else it is. You are wretched. The word means miserable. You are pitiable. That means people see miserable you and ought to have a sense of sadness about your misery. You're poor, you're destitute, you're needy, you're blind, meaning you live in darkness. You are naked, which is a sign of shame in this cultural context. You live a life of shame and darkness, destitute, needy, to be pitied and miserable. Their response, what do you mean? Haven't you seen our homes? 
Haven't you seen our possessions? Don't you understand how good the education is around here? We are to be envied. And Jesus is telling them it's all an illusion. You know, the cultural context to where those who are open about their faith are being pushed out to the margins is going to have a terrible effect on our nation. But it won't have a terrible effect on the church. In fact, the church has been able to function with a nominalism largely because it's been so accepted in the culture. But that's going away. We're all going to find out what we really believe in the long run. What he's dealing with here is the pride that's within the church. Understand this, pride ignores God or pride acknowledges God and acts like He's powerless. That He's not the real deciding factor. But both are pride. One form of pride says, I have so little, God can't use me. If the church we looked at earlier that was poor said, we can't make a difference because we don't have much money, we don't have much resources, that would have been pride. God says our usefulness is not dependent upon our bank accounts or our giftedness or all those other things we want to measure. But for a church or a person to say, I have so much, I don't need God, that's pride as well. Anytime we ignore God or act like God is not the ultimate, we are involved in pride. Christ is honest about the condition of this church, but in His amazing love, He offers great hope. You get to the point right here where you think He's going to say, well, forget about it. But He doesn't. Christ counseled to the church, repent of the illusion of self-sufficiency in verses 18-20. through 20. Repent. Turn away from, turn back toward Christ when you are looking this way, thinking you're fine, you think you're self-sufficient, turn away from that. You are totally dependent upon Christ. That's His counsel. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from Me. Now, why does He use the word buy? He doesn't mean this stuff is for sale. Why does He use buy? He's dealing with merchants here. They, they trust in their bank accounts. They, 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 this is language they understood. Buy, purchase. He, he's not saying you can actually buy it. What he's saying is, you think with your money you can buy what you need, but I am the only one that has what you really need. And notice His loving care and His provision to them. I counsel you to buy from Me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. They think they're rich, but they're not. They're poor. He says, you come to Me, and I am the only one that can make you truly rich, spiritually rich. Then He says, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Well, they were known for uh, the black wool that they specialized in, that helped their bank accounts get bigger. But, but he says, you need white garments. You need my grace. You need to be 
purified. You think that you are wearing amazing clothes when in reality you are spiritually naked. You need Me to clothe you. You need Me to make you rich. And then notice what else He says. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Oh, you think you're something because of the medical school and the medicine for the salve for the eyes that you have created. But understand this, the best you can do is heal physical eyes when in reality you are spiritually blind. You're acting as though you're spiritually blind. You need to come to Me for the salve that I can give that will make you really able to see. Here's His message. None of the things that you are focused on can help you enter the kingdom of God. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to come to Me. You have to look to Me. And if you want to represent the kingdom of God, here and now, you have to come to Me. Your riches will not get you in the kingdom. Your manufacturing will not give you the clothing that you need. And your medical advances cannot cure the blindness of your soul. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Now, this is the similar to Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 here where he talks about his loving discipline. Reprove means to convict, to expose. Discipline means to educate and to train. Just like a good parent corrects their children and trains them and educates them and prepares them, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, be zealous and repent. Be eager. Be, be hot. Repent. Turn from the path that you're on. Now notice verse 20. Behold. Or the word could be translated, Look! I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with Me. Now, this verse down to the years has been misrepresented in all kinds of ways. One of the reasons is it has primarily been used as an evangelistic passage. You have the famous painting of Jesus on the door knocking and it's an evangelistic sort of thing, but that's not what's going on here. Understand this, He is knocking, it says, in this picture at the door of the church. G. Campbell Morgan's famous sermon on this text is titled, Christ Outside the Church. Now you ought to feel the weight of that. It's possible by the way you function with your lukewarmness to act like you can just sort of tip your hat to Him and go about your business that Christ is described as outside of the church. But the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, has Him there Calling for repentance. The first portion of that is be zealous and repent. Now, here's what we've got to do with repentance in our lives. We ought to celebrate repentance. 
It is the love of Christ that leads us to repent. When we are convicted of sin, that is because of the grace of Christ. So often in the lukewarm church where we're focused on ourselves, we get convicted about something and it makes us feel worse about ourselves. The only reason it makes you feel worse about yourselves is somehow some way you thought you were okay and did not have things you needed to change and be convicted of. But if you realize how far you have to go, and that it's only the grace of God, Christ that shows you how you can turn and look to Him again, then you are convicted and you say, oh God, thank you for showing me this. This is your love, you're training me. So often we act like our children that we corrected when, when they did this. Well, no, you're not doing this right. You need to do it this way. And they start pouting. You're like, what? Don't you understand that we're working on this because you don't know the things you need to know yet? Why do you act like I'm, I'm harming you? Why do you act like I'm against you because I'm helping you? Conviction. Oh, man. That's not the way we're to respond. We're to celebrate God showing us things that we need to know so we can get our lives on the right track. It is love that leads us to repent. If God was indifferent about us, we would be doomed. My dad used to always tell me about my coaches, hey son, don't feel bad if they're yelling at you. Feel bad if they stop yelling at you. Right? As long as they're yelling at you, they think you might be able to help them. But if they don't think you can help them, they'll just ignore you. So, so every time your coach yells at you, say, thank you, God. Thank you. Haven't given up on me yet. We've got to reframe the way we think about these things. But notice the second aspect. The repentance is an expression of faith. He who hears my voice and opens the door. Now the idea here is you realize that you are hopeless without Him. If you think, I have need of nothing, you just leave Him on the outside. If you're in Houston and you don't know how you're going to get your next meal, if you aren't rescued and somebody knocks on the door, you don't say, hey, come back tomorrow. You're like, somebody's here, I'm desperate. That's the picture here. The, the lukewarmness, ah, well, I don't need you right now. That is a lukewarm heart. But when you have a desperation, oh, it's Jesus. Let me open the door of my life to you. I have no hope without you. You mean you will come in with me? You will eat with me? I can eat with you? Meaning union and fellowship. Table fellowship with Jesus. Restored fellowship, which we picture as a church at the Lord's table. Yes, we can dine with Jesus. He counts us in His fellowship by His grace. How amazing! Somebody like me, who still has a long way to go. And next week, I will have to repent to, to keep this fellowship intact. But oh God, thank You, You're not done with me. The warning was so harsh, but so is the promise to the repentant faithful. Not just of table fellowship, but even almost the unimaginable. In verses 21 and 22, we have the promise to the church. It's from the table to the throne. Imagine that. The, the lukewarm, the, 
They keep him at a distance. They, they repent. I will dine with you. And then he says, okay. And the end of the story is you'll be on the throne with me. What? Amazing. Look at me at verses 21 and 22. The one who conquers, there's that word, conquers, triumphs, is victorious, overcomes, the word Nike, or which we get the word Nike. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. The, the one who has repented of his lukewarmness and is in fellowship with, with God by his grace is now ruling and reigning. That's the future for all who are in Christ. Notice what he ties it to. I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. My union with the Father, your union with me, makes you in union with us. We will rule and reign forever, and you can join us. Christ conquers by His cross. We will have difficult days as we take up our cross, but the end of the story is ruling and reigning with Jesus. In the Bible, responses to Jesus or sometimes hatred, sometimes terror, and sometimes worship. But they were never just, okay, whatever. Oh yeah, I believe in you, but it's no big deal. That's not the response. In fact, He will not allow that response. Because to say that is to reject everything about him. Think with how, think with me about how the way Jesus gives these messages to these churches is to shape our lives. What Jesus has done and who he is for us is all we need. The answer to every problem is who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And the realization that without Him, we can do nothing. We are also to celebrate evidences of grace. What He commends in these churches that is commendable. We don't take them for granted. Stop and thank God that you may not be what you want to be, but you aren't what you used to be. Anything that you do in line with the Gospel is an evidence of His grace in your life. But he also corrects all of these churches. Be honest about your sin. Don't settle for keeping up appearances. And don't ever think that worldliness cannot creep in the way you see the world. But also develop a lifestyle of repentance that you celebrate. These churches that are rebuked, there's always Christ's counsel. Christ's counsel always involves repentance. And the church is to say, repentance is the pathway to being a conqueror. Repentance is evidence of faith. It doesn't earn faith. It's evidences of the reality of faith. And never stop focusing on Christ's eternal promises. Knowing that you will be a conqueror then, ruling and reigning with Christ, is how you conquer now. Because all of His promises are true. So you don't get trapped into keeping up appearances here and now, because keeping up appearances here and now often means living at odds with eternity. 
So you order your life based on eternity. What incredible grace that this, these messages are given to these churches. And oh, that we would have an ear to hear what the Spirit of Christ says to the churches, including Ashland Avenue Baptist Church. Let's pray.